Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we're going to talk about the fact that humans are very nice. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. joined by a very nice human david only how are you i'm trying to be very nice because rutger breckman says i am that's good i i would also describe you as nice so that's <laughs> so i've got a stranger and a friend i think i'm winning yeah. uh independent uh analysis Verification. yeah that's right uh and we're also joined by the uh, ever so nice luke thank you very much for being here thank you very much thank you for having me and thank you for suggesting that we read this book because i read his first book utopia for realists thoroughly enjoyed two-thirds of it and then he got to talking about open borders and I started singing Kumbaya because at the same time I was teaching strategic cultures and went kid from Holland you're a lovely dude but you live on planet alternative yeah it seems from the outset having not read this book so I'll get you guys to explain it in a second seems from the outset uh, that it's um, very implementable uh, in the in your kind of close circles but um, doesn't globalize or doesn't scale easily because of gosh the real world tensions that exist but can we start by uh, me asking you what uh, what the book's about i think to sum it up it's that contrary to what most people would believe or what the media would have us believe or what politicians and government would tell us is that we're essentially good mm. we essentially want to help each other we're a very cooperative species and that left to our own devices we'll probably be okay. Flying in the face of an example mm. that he would borrow quite, that I suppose he's leaned upon is the book Lord of the Flies that, yep. that is held up as an exemplar of, I mean, albeit a work of fiction, but what would happen if when we are left to our own devices mm. and we end up killing Piggy and... Mm. But significantly, Lord of the Flies is written by a private school teacher or what the Brits would call a public school mm. teacher from a school that runs on hyper-competition, mm. class status, awareness, uh, ruthlessness. So the book was written about a certain bunch of people that run Britain who some of us may not describe as very being very nice. And he had a fairly bleak from the experience of teaching there outlook <laughs> on the world anyway. I think right. he, he mm. even battled depression, depression and all this sort of stuff yeah. at the same yep. time and and his outlook when did the work that he produced was probably reflective of how he yeah. saw the world. Mm. That's not to discredit views from people who are depressed because no. No, of lots, course of, lots of, of depressed course people no. have given us the kind of amazing Great insights. insights. But, but in this case, yes. he had taken his job and his perception of the world to a fairly dark place now the great thing in the book is it's counted by an example what's the, was it tonga or samoa mm. yes i don't remember which which is terrible <laughs> so i'm going to say polynesia and i apologize to people from the right country that we're recording three episodes in a day and i've read five books in two weeks so i'm feeling a little bit booked out mm. or out booked so country in polynesia six young dudes in a private school one night go we're bored and the food sucks. We want to go fishing. Mm. And there's a really mean fisherman down the road. So they liberate his fishing boat to go out fishing. Then all fall asleep. And then they all get caught in a storm. And amazingly, 
they survive the storm and they end up, I think, on the reef near an island that is just a tall tower of stone. So they have to swim ashore from the reef, climb the cliff, and, yep, they're on land. But it turns out they're on an island that has had no people on it since the 1860s when slave traders came and captured the entire population. And these six young guys between the ages of 12 and 16 end up on this island, it's either 13 or 15 months before an Australian captain goes, hang on, there's a smoke signal and a person on the top of that cliff. And when the Australian captain and his crew go ashore, instead of finding a bunch of teenagers who've resorted to being absolutely awful, what he finds is six guys who've made the nicest little world they can manage and have looked after each other. They've captured the chickens on the island and built a chicken coop. They've built themselves a hut. They've built a mock-up of a guitar with what they could find so at the end of every day they can play songs and sing together and tell stories together. Any time they argue, the group goes, no, we can't argue and not resolve it. Both of you go to opposite ends of the island for a while. When you're ready, come back and then we'll all sit down together and work out a way through so that we all still you know, are willing to be in each other's company. One of the young guys uh, fell down the cliff at one point, broke his leg. It healed so well, he was so well taken care of by five other teenagers that you know, the doctors were amazed that they did such a brilliant job without medical knowledge. Mm. These six guys became friends for life out of this and stayed friends. The captain of the Australian ship is still friends with them because he finds them such amazing people from their experience. And guess what? That's not a one of occurrence. Most occurrences show that humans given an opportunity are more likely to build a consensus-driven positive society than they are to kill and eat piggy. <laughs> and he goes back and says it was um, it challenges the survival of the fittest yep. to say that initially it was the survival of the mm. kindest. Yep. We, as a species, Homo sapiens, took over the world because we were the most cooperative mm. um, and it was in our best interests to be nice to mm. one another. Um, because it enabled us to exist in, I suppose, increasingly larger larger groups. Mm. And as a byproduct of that, there was a lot of social learning mm -hmm. um, back then that an idea would spread amongst us because we're so cooperative, mm. like a like a disease, I suppose. It mm. would it would filter out where other, I suppose, uh, would you call them humanoid species back then? Or yeah, other and all that. Yeah, yeah other hominids. Were, he, says, he cites a lot of research would say they were more intelligent possibly than what we were, um, were bigger and stronger, mm. but didn't know how to work together. Not as social oh. and not as adaptable. So the Neanderthal might discover fire and one person, one other Neanderthal might find out about it. Mm. A human or a homo sapien would discover fire and 30 people would discover yeah. that and, and then they would be another teach everyone people. else and that yeah. because there was this it was in us for whatever reason to to cooperate mm. so a fascinating example he gives in the book and i think this is really interesting there's a famous study in russia 
where they decided to see if they could domesticate the silver fox. Mm. And silver foxes are evil little bastards in their natural state. They'll try and chew you up just for sport. You know, they're mean. 25 generations, they got floppy ears, uh, curly tails, changed colour. They yip and you know bark. They like their name and they like having a hug. Now, the consequence of domestication is not just you get a happy, mellow, more uh, baby-like creature, which also happened to humans. You know, modern humans are very much the same. We're like the juvenile version of other forms of hominid. But the other thing is that if you breed for friendly, you also get increased intelligence. Wow. Because the silver foxes got smarter as well. <laughs> so this is a very interesting thing, that it was cooperation and friendliness that we have needed out of the animals we've domesticated. But in a sense, we domesticated ourselves by going, who would we rather be around? How would we rather be? How would we rather function? What would we like our world to be like? Well, if you want it to be nice, be more friendly. And guess what? If you're more friendly, you'll be more playful. Because by being more childlike, baby-like, or juvenile, more juvenile characteristics, the more playful you will stay, the more playful you stay, the more adaptable you become. The more adaptable you become, the more your brain grows. From playfulness and adaptability. Yeah, no kidding. So it's absolutely amazing that what makes us us at our best is, in a sense, remembering to be playful. Accepting that we have, in a sense, been made more juvenile. Whereas, of course, I would say we've got a new risk now that society is making us infantile, which is different to juvenile. Juvenile is get the benefits of the playfulness and the adaptability, but still provide responsibility like the six teenagers on the island. Whereas if we took six infantilized modern humans who behave like two-year-olds, could they survive on the island? I'm not saying they would argue with each other and beat each other shitless, but I wonder whether they would be incompetent at catching the chickens, building a chicken coop, building a hut, looking after someone who broke a leg. And he says it was in that, that juvenile state where we were nomadic hunter-gatherers, catching our own food, foraging our own food, running around the grasslands, the forest, there was, st- there was, there was still this element of, um, this childlike element of, mm. of play. Mm. And, you know, I suppose, I'm not sure where he got the numbers from, but he says, you know, a work, a work week would probably be 20 hours once yeah. you go out yeah. and oh, no. forage all this We've sort of stuff. We've got the proof for it in another book we'll do an episode on later okay. in The Dawn of Everything. Like two hours a yeah. day, right? Yeah, well, a long day mm. for a hunter-gatherer, forager, maybe even if you had a garden outside of the hut would be maximum of five hours, yeah. absolute maximum. That was at the heaviest time of the year. So one thing I'd say that there's stuff in Breckman's book that's amazing, the stuff I'd like to add, and part of the idea of why were people doing so well um, as hunter-gatherers is they're more juvenile, they're more playful, they're therefore more adaptable, therefore using their brain more, so their brain is getting better at doing new things. But also... There's no formal learning structure. There's the informal thing of just hanging out, watching and learning from other people in the group. So you're always learning. So the other thing that's very amazing about the humans he's describing is they're playful and adaptable, but they're highly competent 
in a huge number of categories. And I'm going to write a blog post on this. And what I'm beginning to believe is the most important thing humans have ever developed is comprehensive competence. You're not brilliant at anything, but you can survive and do okay at heaps of things that mean you can work together, you can get a meal, you can build a shelter, you can look after a friend, you're willing to look after a stranger. And I think so many books I've read lately from The Dawn of Everything to To Humankind to Against the Grain are all hinting at the same things. Humans in this state of juvenile adaptability and playfulness in a pre-agricultural, pre-state world also had an incredible level of comprehensive competence. Mm. And we see that elsewhere. I mean, he's obviously a Dutch guy looking at Western civilization, but you read in Tyson Yunkaporta Sandtalk, yeah. talks about the exact same thing. Comprehensive found competence. In yes. indigenous culture here, that, that type of social learning where yep. it was done in the bush, yep. by the riverside. Yep. And to contextualise it in Australia, it appears perhaps the critical point you know, I'm reading against the grain at the moment about how grain really became the basis for the modern state. If you couldn't grow grain, you didn't have something you could tax, you didn't have something you could divide up that would last a long time. But if you look at it, the critical thing for grain farming, it appears, was the end of the Younger Dryas period where the world got drier and warmer after the end of the Younger Dryas. So suddenly there's more people moving towards rivers and water sources to grow food so you've got high population density, which means you finally, you're not just playing with farming anymore, you need it. If we look at Indigenous Australians, they've been here probably 70,000, 80,000 years, maybe longer. I don't know what the current number is. So they started here with megafauna. They then dealt with the last ice age. They then dealt with the Younger Dryas. They then dealt with the period from the end of the Younger Dryas right through to the Europeans arriving with disease and violence. And guess what? They kept evolving their behaviours and kicking ass and doing well. Isn't that amazing? 70,000 years ago, okay, environment, what wacky shit are you going to throw at us this year? Hey, let's adapt. Because we're adaptable and we're playful and we teach each other and we learn together and we have ways of looking after each other. And if you can survive a relatively hostile environment which is what Australia has been since the end of the last ice age and thrive in it with minimal tools and only working a four hour day that's pretty slick now do they have mRNA vaccines? No but neither did we until last year <laughs> I don't really have a problem with that and that's where he sort of said things went wrong for us was it the, the dawn of agriculture he says pre-agricultural um, I suppose like skeletons and stuff they've, they've dug up. Mm. There is very little sign of group violence, mm. I suppose. And he theorizes that when we set down roots and the first time we were able to say this bit of land is mine, mm. that is when we had something to mm. fight over and something yeah. to defend. Mm. And yes. he said, you know, the, the agriculture was also the very beginning of the patriarchy as well. Mm. He said in hunter-gatherer mm. societies... There was no patriarchy. It was men and women were equal, just going about doing their things. But yep. when all of a sudden we started fighting and wars and... Then you build a military. You build a military. Then a military has to have something to do. All the 19-year-old guys are bored. So 
again, we're crossing into multiple books here because so many books fit in together. So, listeners, if you're interested in humankind, definitely read it. Then read The Dawn of Everything. Then read uh, Going Against the Grain because all these books build on the same ideas of what we were and how it's changed. But two really key ideas that evolve in all these books and fit in beautifully together is humans do really well at working together when the system is consensus-based and you're in a group where you know everyone and you feel you're understood and valued. Once we uh, normalise leadership and leaders are in positions of power for extended periods, that's when those people start feeling like they aren't part of the group, they're superior to us. Mm. So very important lesson in humankind and these other books is do not accept leaders for extended periods of time. Do not let it become mm. a lifetime career. And do not let it become multi-generational because that's when those people will start to see themselves as different and more deserving because they take on this extra role. Now, what we know from multiple psychological experiments is you put a group in a room, let them come up with a consensus solution. In most situations, they'll do just fine, which is what humans did for the majority of human history until we essentially got aristocracies who then behave very poorly because they don't lose their power. The other critical lesson, I think, in the book is work done by Gina Perry, who's a Victorian psychologist. I think she's from Victoria. Um, where she basically has debunked the Stanford Prison Experiment oh. and the Stanley Milgram Shock Experiment. Wow. Mm. And basically, Phil Zimbardo, based on what Gina Perry's found and what Ruckman is saying, manipulated the whole situation to get the outcome he wanted and has done so his whole career. I've, I heard him talk about the, the Stanford Prison Experiments where basically he said that the, the guy running it wanted the he was wanted an outcome wanted an outcome it. and basically said to the the participants who what was it done in the 60s or Early 70s, 70s. 70s. Yeah. you can imagine the type of people that were around it was the season of love and yeah. all that sort of and they didn't initially didn't want to do it so no. he pitched it to them going look you don't like prisons I don't like prisons. Let's get rid of them. So if we can get rid of them, are. so we show how bad they are. So they initially yep. didn't want to subject, but he basically said, I need you he guys to them. do the worst you can do so we can have this result. And the yeah, study why? was never peer-reviewed. No. It was published, but of course it was eaten up because Well, it's we got what Phil Zimbardo said about it. We didn't mm. get the real documents until Gina Perry went yeah. and opened the documents. She was the first person to look at the actual documents from the time of the experiment, other than Phil Zimbardo since the time of the experiment. And they proved that Phil Zimbardo primed the situation. Now, he did it really deeply. Stanley Milgram did it less. But the lesson you can take away from what Gina Perry worked out and what Rutger Breckman has written is, as well as having long-term leaders, which is very dangerous, mm. i.e. why you know, I keep talking about in episodes, we should go to a sortition democratic system where you're picked randomly, you do your time, and you can never be a leader again. Which is proven. Because much better outcomes. Yeah. But what we can learn from Phil Zimbardo and Stanley Milgram is that if you tell humans we need to do something dark and dastardly now mm. at a small scale so that we can get a better outcome later on, that will convince the majority of humans. Most humans will do something bad now if it saves people later. And that's what he said. It was our ability to cooperate was one of our greatest strengths, but it's also one of our greatest, greatest weaknesses, weaknesses because we're very mm. susceptible to coercion. Because that's that's the 
and I don't think he's a, I don't think he's um, burying his head in the sand and just no. a blind optimist. He says we no. can be the kindest and also the cruelest species under the right yep. circumstances because you would throw out well if we're so kind. You know, what about the Holocaust? What yep. about apartheid? What about yep. Pol Pot? All of those mm, sort of yep. things. But he said that we we are all essentially good people, but power corrupts. Yep. Well, the other side of it too, and it taps into exactly what you just said, is he makes the point in a few places in a few different ways, and the essence of the point is uh, empathy is astounding for the in-group. Mm-hmm. But clearly since agriculture came along and the state came along, it's been our in-group versus the out-group more and more often. Mm-hmm. So as much as we have honed our empathy, which used to be to everybody when we were in a world where there was more everything than there were people. But we've got past that, you know, 10,000 years ago. There suddenly wasn't enough land for wheat. There wasn't enough big game animals anymore. Mm -hmm. There was competition. So on one hand, we have empathy for the in-group, but more and more, we also have xenophobia toward the out-group because generation after generation, in the same way you can domesticate the silver fox, in the same way we domesticated ourselves. What we have now experienced for thousands of years is that empathy to the in-group is profoundly good. But xenophobia to the out-group means our town doesn't get taken out and our wheat doesn't get stolen and our goats don't get stolen and our young women don't get taken away by the other army who were bored. Mm. And it's it's weird. I, I don't know where the circle ends of the people that you trust. Like... Um, like we know each other, sort of, we've met on a, you know, a few occasions, but I don't really know your family, but I sort of know, I would assume you're a good person, so the people you associate with are yeah. good people. Yeah. But I don't know them, but yeah. I could say, if they're good people, maybe the people they know are good people, but at what point do I then go, I don't trust this guy? When yep. the groups don't look and behave the same. We're back to our Stan McChrystal episode about risk of the say-do idea. Okay. If good people and say and do similar things, they're good people. Mm. But you need the combo. And you know, all these books go around the same numbers, and that is you know, the Dunbar number, 150 people, mm. is as many people as you can know reasonably well. But then you also get into ideas like Benedict Anderson's, Benedict Anderson's idea of the imagined community, and that is people reading stories in the same language, hearing stories in the same mm. language. You can feel for them. So empathy can extend quite big, but there's always a point, even with the imagined community, where it tends to end. And this is where, um, say, Avi Loeb's idea in Extraterrestrial, <laughs> that we need to confront the idea of there being alien species, so we start extending the in-group to all humans yeah. and our whole planet. Genius. So it is conceivable that we can have a global in-group, but only if we recognise an extraterrestrial out-group. <laughs> So we will have to use the same balance point of empathy and uh, xenophobia at literally an interstellar level. That's a sad state, though, that we have to have common enemies. I like. I, I know it's yeah, practical. But it's the, it's again, we're dealing with the biology. We're dealing with reality okay, here. Right, right, right. That you know, it's, at the moment we are still very much a Neolithic brain. Yeah. That's done so well by being able to work together, that we've killed, killed all the big animals, wrecked a lot of the land, chopped most of the forest down, 
invented the iPhone, invented <laughs> mRNA vaccines, yeah. invented supercars, <laughs> invented cool guitars, mm. invented by Rito uh, Young Rose, <laughs> which some of you will recognise from an earlier episode, because these gentlemen are still breathing deeply in a lovely smelling room, mm, thanks to me. Indeed. <laughs> but we did all of that because of the wonderful combination of juvenile characteristics making us playful and adaptable, being highly social, sharing information, learning freely from each other. All that is amazing. But eventually the consequence of that is we become the pressure on the world. So is it conceivable then for for so long we were evolving at a certain rate and then culture was evolving with us at a fairly similar rate. So we found ourselves living in a world that we evolved into and then all of a sudden at some point culture has exploded Mm. and we're still population exploded but i mean and then that put a pressure on culture and everything else yeah so i think we're not we're living in a world where we weren't not designed for but that we didn't we didn't experience evolve for Mm. we don't have practice at dealing with what we now live in we're still nomadic hunter gatherers hanging with our our dunbar number of 150 Mm. Living in a world that we're not designed. Learning really from to. everyone, where the kids would play together at all different ages. And then at a certain point, as they got older, they'd start hanging with the adults more and learning the more complicated things. And when we met a new group, we'd be nice because there was no reason to fight. Can I ask how uh, Nicholas Christakis's, uh blueprint fits into it in terms of having the three groups of the cooperators, the... Oh, gosh... Uh, not they're like the people who leave and then the people who um, fight against it oh yeah well again I was even thinking that when we were talking about um, the dawn of everything and we still mm. got to try and get David Wengrow but so the idea in that, the new year yeah, yeah that you can stay or you can say no or you can leave or you can make something new yeah now Nicholas Christakis in his own way tapped into these same things you can say no you can leave and you can make something new mm. But there are all those, always those pressures in the society. I think Rutger Breckman wants to, I think, make the point that whether you say whether you, whether you say no, whether you leave, or whether you build something new, mm. you're still mainly doing that from the perspective of wanting something nicer for the people you care right. about. That's yeah. the common theme. Absolutely. So Rutger Breckman is about the common theme. Yeah. Most things we do, we don't do selfishly because we care too much about the people we care about to be that selfish. So that's where the in-group, Yes. the more it can be extended, the better off we are because we're tapping in to our love of being with other people, our love of playing, our love of learning, Yeah. but also saying that includes as many people as possible. It's really interesting ideas. And I want to um, throw back, we talked to Nicholas Christakis in episode 47, which was just the start of January last year. Yeah, we might drop um, the link like oh yeah, in the notes for, for this sure. so people can listen to them back to back. Another episode that might be interesting to pair with this would be, um, is there a such thing as evil? Yeah. Yeah, with um, Morris. Yeah, because it's it, when I think about in-groups and everyone taking care of their mates and you can kind of frame everything as if it's bending toward like goodness, mm. um, it, it makes an interesting case for, well, is anything evil? You know, mm. But, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. And, again, we don't know because how are we ever going to tell the physical evidence whether yeah. within a lovely, yeah. you know, it's... You can't just call people hunter-gatherers anymore because it's quite possible they had a little garden too. Mm. They knew their environment brilliantly. Yeah. It's quite possible in that world that, you know, the fact that we have 1% to 2% of males now are sociopaths means they popped out for a reason. 
Yeah. But what happened when they popped out in that world and they were selfish and they took and they were hurtful because they didn't feel empathy? Mm. How many of them were the people who were told to walk over the hill? Mm. Whereas once we started building armies and we needed some hard bastard who would stab someone in the face, Mm. well, the sociopath didn't mind and that got him status. So I wonder if it was a case that at a certain point when the state was formed, the sociopath went from being told to walk over the hill to being recruited but managed as a dangerous thing. Mm. That's something else I've heard him say, and it was a bit of a light bulb for me. Maybe it was obvious to other people, but he said, the victors write the history. Always. We've talked about that in a couple of episodes lately. It was Edward Said first talked about it really seriously in the 90s in a book called Orientalism where he talked about the idea of the blocked narrative that when you get well when you win you get to block everyone else's narrative but when we say we've discussed this is this like we're talking similarities between neoliberalism versus mmt we're talking like stoicism versus so many things well stoicism versus christians is a perfect example okay when the christians won they destroyed yes okay and same, uh, uh, um, and uh, neoliberalism destroyed Keynesianism the same way. Confucians versus Taoists. Yes. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The Confucian. Yeah. Confucianists. Confu- Confucians. Confucian. Yeah. When the Confucians won, they destroyed the reputation of the Taoists. So we see it so many times in history. But even even the stories that the the legends and myths are all yeah. geared around the victor. Yeah, the victor or this, yeah. or but this this warrior that goes out on his own. Yeah. You don't hear a story of the the ten people that were really nice to each other, worked really hard together, yeah. and you know established yeah. a small. Yeah. It's so it's the stories this, come from the borderline sociopaths. Yeah, and and Whoa. and you know that's what we sort of that's what we who we put on a pedestal, yeah. isn't yeah. it? The we, Greek we, hero is the borderline sociopath. Well, again, we, last time you and I had dinner, Luke, mm. and we made the point we're getting Jack of reading books by alpha males going, you too yeah. can be alpha. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't want to no. be because well, I Id- like people. And we had the idea for just the, the little bit better book. Yep, and one day when we both have time, we are going to write the little bit better book. And, and I think, I'll, and we'll get David to read it as an audiobook. Or <laughs> that could be. Well, I think Luke will have to because I'm going to have to like memorize uh, yeah, sentence, cool. say a sentence. Oh yeah, true, mm. good point. But this whole idea I'm becoming fascinated with out of all these books lately of this idea of you know some sort of competence, and like I said, I'm thinking I'm going to call it comprehensive competence. A big characteristic of comprehensive competence was knowing how to be nice to other people, how to work with other people how to get to know a stranger so they could become part of the in-group was part of comprehensive competence. And I'm going to say it now, and I might regret it later, but if I'm ever going to write a book, I think it's going to be about comprehensive competence. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Let's write a book. Isn't that such a fun thing about our little (laughs) book club? Two books, because again, Luke and I have to write the book that he and I thought up while eating pork burgers. Oh, which is a different book? Well, comprehensive competence, I think I have to do first because it will inform what Luke and I are talking about, about don't uh, be alpha, just be a little bit better. Oh, I you see. Know, the little okay. bit better book. Sorry, I had interpreted the comprehensive competence as a little bit better. Well, it is, but I think... Oh, there's like there's like the, the, the book that's like a little bit better and then mm. there's the book that's saying mm. don't be alpha, do this yeah, instead. Because yeah, I yeah. think they're complementary, but I don't want them... Yeah, they shouldn't be the same necessarily. Like the... David Goggins, right? If you're into that type of thing, very inspirational guy. Yeah. But 
I, I don't want to hang I, out with him on a plane. No, what an asshole! I don't want to. I don't. Yeah. I, he stretches for three hours a day. How is yeah. that the standard of yeah. of being better? Yeah. It's like you want to run. You can't just go and run a marathon if you never run before. Just yeah. go put your shoes on. Just go yeah. put your shoes on. Again, atomic habits. Yeah. Start little. Start with something. Start with something yeah. small. Don't. Yeah. We have these these exceptions to the rule. Most people yep. aren't like that. I don't have time. Yeah. No. <laughs> to no. do that. No. And if that's what the standard is, I'm going to fail every single time. Yeah, which means you'll give up altogether. So you give up. So how about just yeah. go for a walk first and then maybe try and run 100 metres. 100%. Yeah. And then 150 metres. Yeah. And, and just be a little bit better than you were yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And that's the power of everything in Rutger Breckman's book. Be a little bit kinder and remember <gasps> that other people, <sighs> yeah. they don't know what to do. They're scared. So maybe their behaviour is not perfect. But rarely, rarely, rarely... Is behavior deliberately malicious? That is the exception. The rule is people trying to do a decent thing. And this is where I would add the bit that he doesn't put in. And I would say they try and do the decent thing and they realize they don't know what to do, then they get scared. Mm. I think that's actually the norm. I mean, he says early on, he talks about how the world is a far safest place. I mean, and yep. a lot of uh, people would have you believe that we live in the most dangerous time. Yeah. But he said it's not. Universally across the world, murder is down, rape is down. Yeah, uh, poverty. Like better angels of yeah. our nature. Yeah, yeah. 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 Poverty, yeah. poverty is down. We live in the best time yeah. Yeah. we have ever lived. But if you were to watch the news, yeah, yeah. we, it's it's horrific. But the yeah. things you see on the news, they're the exception that proves the rule. And that's think, what news is about. So, like a robbery yeah. is a horrible thing. But yeah. are you tell me, one robbery happened last night. Yeah. In the entire state of South Australia, with the amount of people going about their lives, the oh, amount yeah. of interactions, yeah. you tell me only one robbery happened? Yeah. That's amazing. Like on ABC News in the morning, where they have the police officer in at like three minutes to seven, and they'll talk about someone walking into a servo with a knife and getting you know, a small amount of cash. Now, if that's the biggest terrible thing to put it mm. in the police summary for the night, that's an indication of how good it is here. Yeah. E- even, yeah. even the road toll, like... Hundred people die on the roads. That's that is a tragedy. But it's but not three hundred. It's not five thousand. How many cars? Your your people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Driving around these metal missiles at a yeah. hundred kilometers an hour. Yeah. And they're just given this guide of what to do. Yeah. yeah. And you're just trusting that everyone's doing the right thing. Yeah. And you're telling me there's only been a hundred mistakes made. Pretty good. Out of the fatal. millions and millions and millions of, of decisions road of road oh, hours yeah. and decisions that are made every day on the road. Yeah. yeah. We got it wrong a hundred times. It's a tragedy. Yep. But we're doing pretty good. But it's pretty good. good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's pretty good. That, it kind of indicates that even though the system that we're not really built for, or yeah, it, we're, we're actually getting better at managing it. Well, our, <laughs> our brain is trying very hard wow. to make the best out of being overwhelmed. That's I think so that's positive. the way I would take it. That's really heartwarming. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it is. There's a wonderful example in the book of a school in the Netherlands where the kids can pretty much work on anything they like. Once a week they sit down with, they don't even call them teachers, they call them coaches. Mm. And a coach's job is to only help the kids work out what they need to find to do the thing they want to learn. I love that. And the point is, even the kids who were deemed to not be superstars, and that's why their parents sent them there, all end up, once they're finding their jam, doing brilliantly. Because they find their thing. (laughs) But also in the process of finding their thing... They have friends. They get exposed to other things. Yeah. So two of the kids wanted to work on something. So Rutger gives the example in the book of another kid who was really interested in how organizations work. So this kid taught the other two kids you know, how to plan a long-term <laughs> project at like 12. Wow. He basically taught advanced 
project management to two other kids because it's his thing and he loves it. That's awesome. I mean, I don't even know if they would let you do this, but say if you were, you know, in your year two and you just really loved guitar and all you wanted, so you went to school and you got to play guitar. I mean, yes, you're learning guitar, Mm. but the better lesson you're learning is how to acquire a skill. Acquire knowledge quickly and effectively. And once once you get that, I mean, I'm I'm a big Masashi fanboy and... Once you understand the way broadly, you see it in all yeah. things. If you can if you can learn the guitar, you can learn anything. Precisely, you, and that's almost more valuable than once you, know, you learn to learn macaroni you'll be fine. necklaces. Yeah. yeah, once you learn to learn, you'll be fine. Oh, that's it's so much more valuable than the uh, things that the South Australian Department of Education uh, actually tries to implement, like a research project where they're trying to tell mm. you how to learn, how to learn. It's yeah. yeah, And it's meant to be in year 11, but oh, we can't risk you. Oh, sorry, it was meant to be I mean, the end year of year 12. 12, but we move it to year 11 so we can manage it for you. Yeah. 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 If, if algebra is your jam, yeah. do algebra. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I, to be honest, I, <laughs> the dudes that, that skipped that class, yeah. They probably had so much fun out oh, kicking yeah. the footy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and yeah. I was I was the sucker that was in there miserable. Yeah. And those same dudes are successful. They yeah. went to university, they were all yep, good. Yep, they yep. just didn't like algebra. Yeah. Yeah. They went down I was the path. miserable yeah. in that classroom. I remember so just at uh I, I, my my research project experience, David. I had three different projects knocked back before I ended up getting one because no one deemed suitable for making right. sure you. The had whole the point is that you meant to do whatever the yeah. hell you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was told that yeah. this wasn't going to be suitable for the marking format. It's like, well, then why isn't it so? Like, why is it not dynamic enough to no, accept no. that I want to just watch movies and talk yeah. about them? Like when, <laughs> I st- when I started my PhD, my original project was going to be on how art always happens before political uprising that the ideas are always expressed in Uh. art long before they're political. And what I got told is, oh, no, it's a great idea for a book later, but for now it's just too dangerous. So I'm like, okay, I've got the highest mark in your department in 25 years and you're telling me I can't get this over the line. In real terms, having to move from that was probably the beginning without realising it, beginning to lose faith that I would ever actually do my PhD. That was um, <laughs> that was the ultimate form of the university uh, uh, being um, at risk of itself. Yeah, because right? they're yeah. already going, oh, what do you mean this is a risk? Oh, no, it's intellectually brilliant. It's fantastic. Yeah. We love it. But, oh, what if you can't get your PhD doing it? Well, I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? Isn't PhD about our added value to knowledge? Oh, no, no, but we're not comfortable. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, some knowledge is dangerous, David. Well, that was my point. And, and people like Shostakovich and Weldon Keys, their art became the basis for political risk. Wow. Gosh. Anyway, bit off track from where we mm. started. But it's about the idea of if people can learn to learn, and that was the thing, learning to learn used to be play. Mm. And what this brilliant school was doing in Holland, you know, letting kids learn to learn. And yes, saying, look, the real problem we have here, kids, is you still have to do some standardised testing so we get to keep our licence as a school. Yeah. But once you've learnt to learn the thing you love, you will get through the things you have to do so fast and you will understand the compromise in life is. We're letting you do the cool things that interest you more than the things that make the system work. And what seemed to be clear in the book is most of the kids who were 16 understood they knew they had to do a little bit of the things to make sure the school was okay but they cared about the school so much for letting them be themselves Mm. why not do one day a week on the stuff that meant that the school was okay these kids learnt to work collectively learnt to engage learnt to care by being allowed to be the kind of people that we more or less want to be 
But nope. essentially what I used to try and do for you lot in complex problem solving. Yeah, very much yeah? so. Be the people you want to be and I will try and keep the university over there at the end of my cane and every time it gets too close I'll jab it again. Now come on, take advantage of the space I've made you. Which again, Tim, you'll remember, there were people in the class who could run with it, the majority, and then there were those few who looked really freaked out by freedom. Yep, and increasingly so. Yeah. Each week they looked a bit more worried. <laughs> oh, and yeah, as the terms went on, as the classes yeah. progressed. Oh, gosh. I think that feels like a, a, a relatively positive. I I'm, I'm really enjoyed the discussion. It feels like a positive place to, to finish up. Uh, any any final thoughts, Luke? Um, no, just say hello to some strangers. Yeah, a little don't bit get better. Into, don't get into their cars. No. Yeah. But, 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 and yeah. don't give but, them lollies. No, no, but... Just be nicer. Be be nicer yeah. to people. Say hello. It's it's a, it's a real hallmarky Instagram thing. But someone said to me the other day, it "Goes in a world where you can be anything, be kind." Yeah. And yeah. I think it's just such a. It's just a, especially at the moment with everything that's got, yeah. we got going yeah. on. Everyone is. Most people are basically good people just trying to get by. Yeah. Yep. And knowing that perhaps the takeaway from this is that we do protect our little group a little bit mm, more. Yeah. Like David said before, quite often we're probably just motivated by fear, but that fear is probably coming from a good place because they're trying to protect their tiny little mm. unit. And, yep. and remember that you're going to do that to be aware and go, okay, can I expand my idea of the in-group a bit further? Take RV Loeb's idea on extraterrestrial. The once we realize we're not alone in the universe, then we'll have an out-group that means we're all one species together on one little blue ball. And it can start somewhere small. Like, we just moved house, so I'm introducing myself to my neighbours. Yep. And get to know the people in your street. That can shift your family unit. Yep. out of, Move a couple of houses, mm. yep. you know? Mm. Get to know the people next door. Yep. All that sort a of stuff. A really good start. Thank you very much, Luke. No, thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen and listeners. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.